This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Congressman Cicilline, thanks so much for the time this morning. My pleasure. This, will, this is probably the last time you'll be on the show uh, as a member of Congress. So um, it's rapidly approaching that June 1st date certain that you're going to shift from Congress to the Rhode Island Foundation. But before we get into that, I guess a couple of major issues. Obviously, over the weekend, a horrific mass shooting event. And it's just something that seems to be part of the American fabric right now. Your take as a member of Congress on what seems to be in action in terms of major efforts to address the guns that are often used in these mass shootings. Yeah, I mean, it, it's heartbreaking. You know, we have had more mass shootings this year than days of the year. Uh, we have a, a tremendously serious gun violence epidemic in this country. It's a public health crisis. It's the leading cause of death for children in America. Think about that. It's it's not car accidents. It's not anything else. It's gun violence. And so this is a particularly American problem. And uh, we're not powerless to, to there's, uh, you know, we're, there are things we can do about it. And, you know, I'm the author of the assault weapons ban. These are the weapons that are really the weapons of choice in these mass shootings, largely because they can kill as many people as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, they were designed for the battlefield. They don't belong in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And we've seen mass shootings in synagogues and churches and malls and hospital emergency rooms and schools and, you know, there are dozens of bills in the House right now that would significantly reduce gun violence in this country. Not one of them is going to solve it all, but taken together, they would make a big difference. But we cannot get our Republican colleagues to support even universal background checks. So, you know, I think this is going to be an, an election year issue in 2024. There is one party that is deeply committed to reducing gun violence by enacting common sense gun safety legislation. There's another party that's absolutely opposed to it and that are really in the pocket of the gun lobby. And I think the American people are gonna to have to, as President Obama said, become single issue voters, not vote for someone who doesn't commit to supporting common sense gun safety legislation. When people can't send their kids to school, when people are afraid to go to a mall because they're afraid they're not gonna come home alive, we have a problem that has to be addressed and it's Congress's responsibility to do it. We keep hearing this notion that it's a mental health issue from, from members of the Republican party. There's no question that there's mental health issues in our world right now. I mean, you can boil it down to your local neighborhood all the way out to the, the known universe, right? But how is how do we how do we we, we decouple the idea that th that one you know, th there's this notion that that's the sole source of the problem? How do we decouple those ideas? Well, it's not only not the sole source of the problem. It's two things to remember. The first and most important thing to say is the vast majority of people who are struggling with mental illness never use violence. So let's just say that right at the very beginning. And the truth of the matter is there is no evidence that there's a higher increase or higher incidence of mental illness in America than any other developed country in the world. So this notion that this is the cause of the problem is simply not true. The cause of the problem is the ease at which someone can have access to a firearm. There are more firearms in this country than people. Um, and the reality is uh, even uh, when we've proposed legislation that would allow you to make sure that someone with a serious mental illness that is a, that is a danger to themselves or others can't have access to a gun, these red flag laws, even those our Republican colleagues oppose. So that's just not the case. We certainly should do everything we can to make sure people who have mental illness are treated 
and remove the stigma that's associated with it. And certainly we should make it uh, impossible for someone who's a danger to themselves or others because of that illness to have access to a firearm. But that's just part of the solution. The real problem is the easy access to firearms, the fact that they, we are awash with guns, that people can get them uh, at a moment's notice. And, and that's the real problem. Debt ceiling, how far apart are we in reality? Is the government going to go bust in a couple of weeks here? Basically, you'll leave Congress and according yeah. to some, you know, I mean, is, it, I is think, it talking points or is it real? Yeah, no, look, I think this is a very precarious time for 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 the default conversations. I think we have uh, Republicans. It's important to remember that the default question is whether or not America is going to pay its bills for things it already purchased. It's like if you get a credit card bill for something maybe you shouldn't have purchased and you think, oh, I just don't want to pay it out. It's too much money. Well, you shouldn't have bought it. And so this is, we got our credit card bill, we have to pay it. Then we can have a conversation of how do we reduce the costs of government? And of course that will have to include some idea of how do you generate revenue? The same Republicans who are willing to default on the United States passed a $1.7 trillion tax cut that was unpaid for, that added to the debt. And uh, they don't wanna have a conversation about paying America's bills. Look, we can't default, but I think the reality is there are Republicans in the house in particular some who think it won't be a big deal, some who think it'll be very bad, but President Biden will be blamed for it, so who cares? Um, it will cost, it will cause the increase on people's mortgage payments, car payments, it will you know, cause unemployment to skyrocket. I mean, it will have real impacts for working families. And so it's not some kind of esoteric theoretical problem. It's gonna have real life consequences, people that we're trying to protect and that we work for. So I hope my Republican colleagues will come to the table and say, let's pay our bills. Let's not default on the, the, the obligations of the United States and engage in a vigorous debate about how we spend money going forward. But that we should not be playing Russian roulette with the American economy. And I'm really concerned that we have some Republicans in the House who either don't fully appreciate the implications of this or really don't care and are committed to having the country default on our debt, which I think would be a really, really serious problem for working families in this country and for, for America as a, you know, we are the, the global economic leader in the world. This is a bad uh, look for the United States of America. Your, your gut instinct, will we have a resolution? I hope so. I, I hope at the very least there's a short-term solution while we work out the budget, but um, I don't know. This is a, a different Republican Party in the House. I think even different than you see in the Senate. I think Senator McConnell has been a lot more measured about this. He recognizes the dangers of this. But, you know, you have to remember, Kevin McCarthy became Speaker of the House by promising all kinds of crazy things to get the votes of the most extreme MAGA uh, right wing of his caucus. So who knows what commitments he made? You're no stranger to this conversation, but it's almost like the Republican Party of today has shifted very rapidly. I know the seeds have been planted, but it's shifted almost away from parliamentary politics. And as you said, it's sort of it's flavored with and and part of its voter base is from this. The word extreme gets tossed around quite often, but but that is really the appropriate way to describe some of these uh, some of the components of the Republican Party. Is there a pathway as somebody who's been a leading opposition voice in Congress, is there a pathway for the Republican Party to get back towards a more broad coalition, more back, closer to a parliamentary party 
focused on issues or have the culture war and other sort of, I, I would say, nonsensical divides um, put them so far out of any reasonable mainstream that there's no pathway going forward. Well, I mean, I'd say first, you know, we need a functioning Republican Party. I'm a proud Democrat, but I see the value of having another political party that not only challenges our ideas, but presents their own as an alternative. And that's healthy for our democracy. But I think you've seen the Republican Party, as you've accurately described where they are. They have become so extreme in issue after issue. You think about guns. They refuse to enact any gun uh, safety provisions in the face of overwhelming evidence that we have a gun violence epidemic. In fact, their solution was abolish gun-free zones in school to make sure everyone in a school building is armed with a loaded firearm. I mean, this is crazy. On the issue of reproductive health care, they're supporting and promoting a national abortion ban, making it impossible for women, even when the life of the mother or the victims of rape, like in the most egregious circumstances, another very extreme policy. So I think you're right that that's where they are today. Uh, I think the best evidence of that was in the last presidential election. They actually didn't have a party platform. Think about that. A national Republican Party had no party platform. It's basically whatever Donald Trump said there for that. So that's where they are. I do think there is a path forward and we need them to find it. But I think that's only going to come after they face withering defeat at the ballot box. So I think when the Democrats take back the House, they hold on to the Senate. We reelect President Biden. They will finally have to come to terms with the reality that Donald Trump and this extreme MAGA frame of their party is not a path to victory. And they're going to have to rebuild from the bottom up. And I think that's important. I think you'll see Republicans then come out of the shadows and finally find their voice. But I think it will only happen after a serious electoral defeat. Another one, by the way, they've had three. Apparently they need one last one. All right, kind of shifting gears now. So the decision was made, the announcement was a major deal when when it was announced that you were going to be leaving Congress. Now we have what is somewhat of a feeding frenzy, but it's a it's a positive one for the most part in terms of folks that are seeking uh, your seat. Um, just a quick overview right now. What's your message to anybody running for this seat? I'm sure you're, you're not going to endorse anybody, right? I mean, is that fair to say? And at least at least at this point in time, and and just your take on this this race that has started to really, we're already well into it. Yeah. Well, I have the advantage of knowing, I think every single candidate uh, in the race, which is great. And uh, you know, there are some particularly strong candidates in this field. Uh, I know the voters, of the first congressional district have um, great wisdom and they're going to pick the best person for this job. Uh, I would just say to the candidates who are running, um, you know, work hard. You know, they all know this. Go meet the voters door to door. Tell them about your commitment on important issues. Tell them how you're going to represent them. And um, they will be elected to what I consider one of the best jobs in the world. Have the, I consider my 12 years of having the honor of serving uh, in Congress and representing the great people of Rhode Island to been one of the greatest privileges of my life. And I think I've spoken to almost every candidate who's reached out to me and I, I've never discouraged anybody from running for office. I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity to serve. And these are great candidates. And the one thing I would say is I hope people will give them some space because I know there are a lot of people who have been very kind to me and sort of described my work. But I remind them I've been there for 12 years. I mean, my first day I was new, too. And it took me some time to kind of understand the job and become 
I think, a very effective member of Congress and producing real results for my constituents. But these members will need the same thing. I mean, they're new. And so just, you know, don't have, you know, just support them in their early days and, and let them become a really great member of Congress. We have a great delegation, Senator Reid, Senator Whitehouse, Congressman Magazine or so. Um, I'm, I'm excited. I think it's it's great to see the diversity of the candidates and the choices that the district uh, first voters will have. From my purview in the afternoon on WPRO, where I am the producer of the Dan York Show, Dan is really the only voice that has been out there on this that I've heard, but significant criticism of you for making the announcement and then waiting until June 1st to actually leave Congress. And the 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 thought is, why not leave immediately and get the show on the road, get, get the primary date set, get the general election set so that the representation takes place, the new representation is installed immediately. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, well, for two reasons. One is I, I wanted to time it so that, those, you know, that Rhode Island uh, during the slowest months, you know, July and August are typically times where not as much happens. We, we typically have August uh, back in our districts. So I was trying to do it in a way that would uh, disrupt, you know, the representation during the most critical times. Um, and, you know, actually, I think having an opportunity over the summer for voters to see the candidates is important. And so it works out that the special election and the general election, which, of course, is decided by the governor. But it's at a time when people are used to voting, September for primaries, November for generals. So I think that will hopefully increase voter participation which I think is an important thing. So look, I, the decision about when I would begin was a decision made by the Rhode Island Foundation. They asked me to begin on a certain date and uh, I'm ex very excited about that role. But, uh, you know, I'm, I think voters will have an opportunity to see, I think there are now 16 candidates and, you know, um, have an opportunity to kind of see them, hear from them and decide who to vote for in the, in the election in the fall. When did this first come up and, and when did you decide that you were going to uh, actually leave Congress and take this this new role at the Rhode Island Foundation? Uh, the decision was made by the board uh, two days before it was announced publicly. Um, and the discussion began weeks before that. Um, and, you know, the more I contemplated the ability, you know, I've always been motivated by what I can do to improve the lives of Rhode Islanders. That's why I ran for mayor. It's why I ran for the state legislature. It's why I ran for Congress. And it was very clear to me after some discussions with uh, folks at the Rhode Foundation, and particularly with the search firm, that this was an opportunity to have a really significant impact on the state that I love, to work at a place that's doing extraordinary things to improve the lives of Rhode Islanders, and to really build upon my almost 30 years in public office, uh, but to bring it back home in a way that I know will impact our whole state. So it was sort of a hard thing to say no to because it was such a significant impactful role and the Rhode Island Foundation, as you know, there's virtually no major public policy that happens in Rhode Island that the Rhode Island Foundation is not a part of. It's one of the oldest and largest community foundations in the country. So um, I'm very excited to come back to my home state and to work in a place where I can actually see the impact of the work we're doing and the improvements we're making in the lives of Rhode Islanders. I'm really excited about that. So looking back on your terms in Congress, you know, what's the thing you're going to miss the most? Oh, there's no question. The thing I'm going to miss the most is my colleagues. You know, I I didn't fully appreciate this until the announcement was made. And then I 
got so many really wonderful phone calls and text messages from colleagues who were really sad that I was leaving. And you realize in that moment that over 12 years, you make real friendships, you know, particularly when you're working hard every day, you don't maybe take stock of it because everyone's so busy. And it's only in those moments that you're about to leave that you reflect on just these incredible friendships that I know I'm going to keep up, but they're different when you're not seeing people every day. But, you know, people like Robin Kelly and Jamie Raskin and Joe Neguse, you know, people I work with a lot, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, you know, there are people I'm going to miss a lot, um, the camaraderie and the friendship for sure. You became a major national figure, you know, in terms of inside the chamber, but also somebody who was on television a lot. And obviously as the impeachment manager for President Trump with whichever impeachment it was, was it 217? You lose track of how many (laughs) times this man was impeached, but... You know, you're a national figure. You know, is that something that um, that would naturally come with some adrenaline, I would assume, and, and shifting away from that, is that something that's going to be difficult for you? Um, yeah, look, I, there's no question I loved all of those roles. And I, you know, part of what I did for the caucus was on messaging. And so being on TV was part of that. And that's a role I really enjoyed. What I'm excited about and kind of rebuilding my life in terms of the work of a foundation president is I do think one of the things that a community foundation can do and think about in a kind of uh, really effective way is, you know, I think there are really tremendously deep divisions in the country and there's a lot of really interesting work being done around the country about how do you rebuild a sense of community? How do you kind of knit the community back together? A philanthropy is kind of the best example of that where you're literally doing good things for other people. But I think, you know, community foundations are uniquely positioned to be part of and maybe even lead some of that conversation of how do we strengthen our democracy in a way that brings us back together and a way that I think in many respects, elected officials can't do because we're sort of in the fight. So I'm excited about not only building upon the work that Rhode Island Foundation is already doing, but thinking about what role can a community foundation have? And Rhode Island has always been an example to the country from our earliest days of religious tolerance and separation of church and state and all the wonderful things that have come out of our state. And so maybe we can develop a way for community foundations to really be a leader around the country and the Round Foundation can do some of this work to be an example to other foundations around the country. So I'm excited about um, ways to bring attention to the work of the Round Foundation um, in order to kind of build our capacity to do even more. So um yeah, I mean, I'll miss certain things about the job, but I'm really excited about other things um, that I, I didn't have in my life before. So uh, this is going to be a great, great opportunity to do a lot of good work here in my home state. Last question. When you think about that role at the Rhode Island Foundation, what's the greatest challenge right now in the state? There's a lot of work that's going on in housing, which is obviously incredibly ne- necessary. Some of it's municipal zoning conversations. Some of it's really just reimagining housing, whether that's campsites, uh, whether it's tiny houses, again, whether it's that that zoning and development aspect of things, whether it's restrictions on short-term rentals, there's a lot of reimagining that happen- that needs to take place regardless of any fundraising that would occur. You can raise all the money in the world if the infrastructure is not there to deploy those ideas, then what good are those dollars? But housing seems to be the driving force right now almost all discussions. Of course, education is another significant one, particularly in the urban core. But what are what are Rhode Island's greatest needs right now? And how can you serve those or super serve those 
through this. Yeah, no, I think, look, the Rhode Island Foundation's identified three principal priorities in its strategic plan of making sure, you know, Rhode Islanders have access to quality, affordable health care, creating economic opportunities for all Rhode Islanders and improving the quality of education in our state. Those are kind of the, and they do lots of other things with respect to hunger and homelessness and the arts and a number of other things. But I do think you're right that housing is at the center of so much of that. In fact, from my very early days in the General Assembly, which was a very long time ago, we had a housing crisis then. I feel like we have never lived in a state or in this state where we haven't faced a serious housing crisis. So we haven't solved this problem in 30 years. I think what we have now is an opportunity, both because we have everyone in state government and local government focused on it. We have the foundation, I think, has played a really important role in this. And we have some resources now committed to it. But you're right. We, we, if we don't figure this out, we will not be able to continue to grow as a state. It impacts economic development. If you don't have a place to live, it's harder for you to go to school and study and all, it's harder to hold a job. So it's the centerpiece really of the stability of neighborhoods. And so I think that's, that will remain one of the most important priorities of the foundation. And I know the speaker has introduced a suite of bills uh, designed to kind of get more housing stock to market. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's bre- it's really um, a breath of fresh air to see like such a serious legislative effort being focused on this issue. But, you know, I look forward to working with the local state uh, leaders as well as our federal delegation to make sure the foundation remains a very important part of the solution uh, going forward. Congressman David Cicilline, a couple of weeks left in Congress before you take over at the Rhode Island Foundation. Thanks for making time this morning and good luck as you transition to this new role. Thank you. And I just want to say a final thank you to all my constituents who have given me this extraordinary privilege to represent them for the last 12 years in Washington. And uh, it will remain the greatest honor of my life. So thank you.